So let us hear the word of our God, 2 Samuel 6, verse 1. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went with all the people who were with him from Baalei Judah to bring up from there the ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ohio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, <coughs> which was on the hill, accompanying the ark of God. And Ohio went before the ark. And David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nacon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his heir, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Peretz Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months. And the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was, while those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. And David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. May God add his blessing to the reading and hearing of his holy word. <clears throat> Amen. Well, last time we began this rather momentous section here in 2 Samuel. In many ways, people would say this is the, the pinnacle of, of uh, the events here uh, in this book, the bringing of the ark, and then, of course, uh, what follows with the covenant with David. And uh, uh, David simply was seeking to bring Yahweh to be with him, so to speak, here, the ark of God, bringing it to Jerusalem so that God's throne would sit beside the human throne, showing uh, David's dependence on God, ultimately. And, of course, he wanted to bring worship to Jerusalem now and not uh, kind of scattered about, you might say. And so 30,000 people gather together, very exciting a very, uh, can you say, righteous thing here that David is seeking to do. But unfortunately, disaster struck because David's good intentions are not enough to honor the Lord. And so judgment came upon Uzzah for their disobedience. So <clears throat> we pick up here then mid-story with verse 8. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah and he called the name of that place Peretz Uzzah to this day. All right. Well, first of all, we are told here that David is upset. He is angry. Uh, does this mean he is mad at God? Well, because of uh, our imperfections, there probably was some of that sin in his heart. 
But it's probably safe to say that the text is emphasizing here that he is angry with himself for this failure. Uh, Probably more angry with the sons of Abinadab and the priests and Levites who did not remind everyone how this should have been done. We'll see a little more of this later. Um, And so in verse 13, we will see that they do it correctly this time. They had failed at such an important task. But add to that just some of the logistics of it. 30,000 people came for a death. Singing, praising, joyous, excitement, all of this instantaneously stopped. 911 was called, but then everybody went home. Party's over. Much time and effort was lost, money even. And David is upset, and you can understand why, but he certainly shoulders some of the blame too. Maybe we could put it this way, David is not upset at God, but he is upset that God's wrath had to be implemented and brought about, revealed in this way. So significant was this that he names it. He names it Peretz Uzzah. Now the word here for Peretz is uh, outbreak, and we see that, and the New King James puts it right in the verse there, the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah. That's what Peretz Uzzah means, outbreak of Uzzah or against him. Now this is the same word that we saw at the end of chapter 5 in verse 20. Remember, there is in the context of the outbreak or the breakthrough of the Philistine line. And so four times in that verse, we have the name Baal Peretzim, which is the plural form of Peretz. And then you have about breaking through the enemies twice. They're the, like water. And so as we put this together, note these two coinciding thoughts. God will fight for his people. God will bless us. God will be with us. That's what we saw at the end of chapter 5. But now here in chapter 6, we must obey him. Good intentions are not enough. Thinking that we're high on this scale of righteousness because we're doing something religious is not significant here. Being righteous and obedient is. And David had fallen short. We cannot control God. We cannot use him for our religious activities. We cannot use him for religious excitement. We must fear him. We must obey him. As I mentioned last time, no one would invent a God like this. We would either invent a God like chapter 5, hey, he's on our side, he helps us to win, or we'd invent a God like this in chapter 6. Hey, he, he could just break out suddenly against us but not both. Let me read here a moment. This is from Dr. Davis. And uh, he says this. In chapter 5, verse 20, Yahweh breaks out against David's enemies. Chapter 6, verse 8, against David's friend. Yahweh may break out against the Philistines or Israel. God's lethal holiness levels both pagans and churchmen. Of course, as readers, we can continue to object if we like, but the application of the text is clear. You dare not trifle with a God who is both real and holy. Yahweh is not your neat, warm, fuzzy friend in the sky. And so he says here a little further down, Yahweh's people tend to forget what sort of God they face. 
we forget that there is heat in his holiness. Now, we do not need to be terrified, but being scared wouldn't hurt a little bit. If I can liken this to what I was talking about this morning, we have God as our Father and our Savior. Christ is our Redeemer. He sees us as holy and righteous in his sight. And this is great. We can come before our God, but we cannot forget the God that we worship. He demands perfection. He demands holiness. And when we don't do it, we may not be cast out of hell, uh, excuse me, out of heaven into hell, but God may be very displeased with us. And certainly that's what we see here. Now Davis goes on to say, let's not fall prey to the idea, well, that was just the God of the Old Testament. The God of the New Testament is different now. Remember Acts chapter 5 with Ananias and Sapphira. And so it's the same God with the same standards. So let's continue. Verse 9. David was afraid of the Lord that day, and he said, How can the ark of the Lord come to me? All right, obviously David is not only angry, but here afraid. Afraid of the true God. David's overconfidence, his pride, his self-focused zeal was brought crashing down. His mistaken view of himself is corrected by God here. He is rightly humbled. God cannot be trifled with, and as I mentioned last week, God is not tame. God is holy and righteous. And when we remember that, things are much better. Again, to connect with what I said this morning, when we think we're way too high in this scale of righteousness, that's when God drives us down and reminds us where we really are in our righteousness. And that's what happened here with David. When we come through these doors into worship, what attitude do we have? It is, one of, is it one of haughtiness or is it one of humility? We can come boldly through Christ, but we must come humbly and obediently. Notice also then this point in the verse. Our tendency when we are confronted with God's holiness and our unrighteousness is to run away, to distance ourselves from God. It's exactly what David does here, right? God can't be brought to Jerusalem now. We're going to put him off here on the side of the road, so to speak. But that's not the right way. For us to handle when God confronts us in our sinfulness. Humility and fear, repentance, this is the right response. But holding God at a distance is not the right response. And so when God confronts us in our sin, do not cease praying, do not stop reading your Bibles. Do not neglect coming to church. The best thing for us to do when God confronts us in our sinfulness, especially when he's exposing that our good intentions are not all that good, turn to the Lord. It's the best place for us to be. Blessings are found in God's presence. We cannot be casual, but we can be comfortable 
before a holy God. Not because of us, but because of Christ. We cannot be presumptuous, but we can boldly rest in his grace, his character, and his promises. And again, it is only because of what Christ has done in our place. Let's turn a moment to Job chapter 19. Job chapter 19. We, as you're turning there, of course, we have a number of passages in the scriptures that speak of both God's grace and his holiness side by side together. You think of Exodus 34. You think even of the Lord's prayer, our Father in heaven. Okay. <clears throat> but notice what we see here in Job. Now, there's a difference here, of course, because all the suffering that Job faced was not due to his specific sin, like here with David and Uzzah and such. Uh, but nevertheless, Job lost his family. He had lots of health problems. His wife was not helpful very much at all. And at first, Job responded well. But over time, he started grumbling and saying, hey, this isn't all that fair. In Job 19, he first uh, addresses his friends, right? Verse 2, how long will you torment my soul? But notice he continues verse 7 if I cry out concerning wrong I am not heard okay verse 13 he God has removed my brothers far from me okay, again all these people are leaving him my relatives have failed my close friends have forgotten me and young children despise me there verse 18 and so forth okay but notice even though we see Job can you say blaming God for this to some degree Notice what he says, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. Job is far from perfect in his response to suffering. That's certainly true of us all. Job did some good things, especially at the beginning, and even at the end in his response. In the middle, not so much. But notice this statement. The one who attacked Job, you could say. God ultimately, who permitted Satan to do these things. Even though God was against Job, Job's only recourse is to turn to his Redeemer. To turn to God is our best refuge. Even though God may be against us because he is punishing us for our sin. Even though God may be against us in some way just kind of more generally here, like we see with Job's life. But God is our place of refuge. That's where we should turn. Do not run away from him when he brings hard things against us, especially when it's because of our specific sins. Okay. David did well to endeavor to bring God's throne to Jerusalem and place him beside his human throne. David did rightly to unite Israel in worship in Jerusalem. But David had to be reminded of some important things. The fullness of God's law and holiness. And this point too, that when God is displeased with us, that's exactly where we go, to God. But right now he does not do that. And so again, this is something that we see in the New Testament. I mentioned Acts 5 with Ananias 
and Sapphira, the early church, had to learn this as a moment, if you will, and be reminded that, hey, the place for us to go is God. At the beginning of the, the priesthood and their ministry, Nadab and Abihu had to learn these ideas too. God's presence must be treated with reverence and obedience, even as we enjoy being there. And yet it is God's presence where we go, even when we're punished. All right, well, let's keep going. Verse 10 now. So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David, but David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. David unfortunately acts on his fears here, and now the ark is housed at Obed-Edom's house. Verse 11, the ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom the Gittite three months, and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Okay, so for these three months, God's presence blesses this man and his family. Presumably, Obed-Edom did not open the ark like the men in Beth Shemesh and 50,070 men of Beth Shemesh died. Presumably, He did not do anything to cause him to fall over and lose his head and hands like Dagon in the temple in Philistia. He must have treated it with respect, as God had said. And so God blessed him. Now let me pause here and address this question. Who was Obed-Edom? Well, his name, Obed-Edom, means servant of Edom, So are there connections to Edom, the descendants of Esau? Uh, It says that he is a Gittite, and that means uh, someone from Gath. So does that mean he was a Philistine? Well, in Joshua chapter 21, we are told there are two cities with the name Gath in it, one in Dan, which is over near Philistia, gath Ramon there, and then one up further north in West Manasseh, also called gath Ramon. Um, is that what's referenced? We don't know for sure. Gath, though, can mean a wine press or an olive press, and so some have tried to say this is a reference to the man who basically produced olive oil and wine. This was part of his livelihood. We don't know for sure. Certainly, at this time, he is living along the road between Kiriath-Jerim and Jerusalem. Let's turn now a moment to 1 Chronicles and chapter 16. Now, I want us to turn back to... uh, to this here, so stick something here. But for now, let's look at chapter 16 and uh, look at verse 4. It says, He, that is David, appointed some of the Levites to minister before the ark of the Lord. And you see them listed there in verse 5. And notice that Obed Edom is listed there. All right. Is this the same guy? Look down at verse 37. So he left Asaph and his brothers there before the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to minister before the Ark regularly as every day's work required. And Obed-Edom with his 68 brethren, including Obed-Edom the son of Jeduthun, and Hosa to be gatekeepers. That sounds like two Obed-Edoms, doesn't it? So let's turn uh, back then to chapter 15 and note verse 18. 
in that list of names, you see Obed-Edom there as gatekeepers. And then in verse 21, another Obed-Edom is mentioned there who played the harp. And then down in verse 24, at the end of the verse, Obed-Edom, the doorkeeper. I mean, do we have a half a dozen Obed-Edoms here? Obviously, it sounds like there's more than one, and it sounds like then that it was a somewhat common name. Let's turn to chapter 26 then here in 1 Chronicles. And here we have the division of gatekeepers. And note especially here, 1 Chronicles 26, verse 4. Moreover, the sons of Obed-Edom were, and you see them listed, and note the end of verse 5, for God blessed him. Well, that sounds like the language of 2 Samuel 6, doesn't it? You see even more listed there in verses 6 and 7. And then note verse 8, all these were the sons of Obed-Edom, they and their sons and their brethren, <clears throat> able men with strength for the work, 62 of Obed-Edom. So which one is the Obed-Edom where the ark stayed? Well, I'm inclined to think that it was this one here, and I'm certainly not alone in this, but there are lots of questions. Uh, but the fact that he had 62 descendants here in the immediate uh, uh, time frame and it says that God blessed him it does sound like this was the case and so he was a gatekeeper um, we don't know for sure but this is uh, a little bit of background as for this man so as we come back then to 2nd Samuel and chapter 6 okay, after three months then of the ark being at this man's house David is told about the blessings that came upon Obed-Edom. Hey, after three months, you know, what are you going to see? Uh, but maybe there were, if he had multiple wives, maybe they were all pregnant or something like that. But whatever the case, after three months, it was pretty evident. And so David now concludes that it is safe to bring the ark to Jerusalem. So verse 13, uh, excuse me, verse 12 says, that was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of, of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And then verse 13, And so it was, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Now the first thing to notice here is that they bore the ark. They carried it like they were supposed to do. Like God had commanded back in Exodus and in Numbers. And yet, even in their obedience, note what they do first. They take six steps and they stop and they sacrifice to the Lord. To atone for sin and even to sanctify their efforts. <clears throat> note the huge contrast from what we saw in the first section. <clears throat> David is presumptuous. David is excited He's filled with religious fervor, but with disobedience. Now, you see obedience combined with religious excitement, as well as not looking to himself, but looking to God. Offering sacrifice, looking to a substitute, looking to God's grace in this act of worship, in this act of obedience. Presumption, sin, and disobedience is now replaced with humility, obedience, and payment for sin. 
God's punishment when he brings it upon us is designed to make us holy. It's not just that he's mad and he's spanking us. When God disciplines us, it's for the purpose that we actually will grow in righteousness. And that's exactly what's happening here. David is coming up this scale of righteousness that I've talked about. And so when he disciplines us, let's learn from it. Let's grow from it. Let's become more righteous. And certainly we see that with David. So verse 14. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. <clears throat> now, this point is going to be spelled out more in the next section, so I won't say much about it here. Verse 15, so David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Hey, no stumbling here, no judgment, no death, no disobedience, but great joy through it all. All right. Well, 2 Samuel obviously gives us some important information here, but it only gives us a very little bit of information, really. Let's turn now to 1 Chronicles again, this time chapter 15. And as I've mentioned to you uh, before, the 1 Chronicles typically is going to elaborate upon what we've seen here in 2 Samuel, and that is certainly the case here. We saw some of it last week as we looked at chapter 13, but let's look now at 1 Chronicles 15, and really we need to read the whole of the chapter and into the next chapter. So tonight, let's look at chapter 15 and briefly make our way through this chapter. So verse 1, David built houses for himself in the city of David, and he prepared a place for the ark of God and pitched a tent for it. Now, we'll see some of these ideas as we get into the covenant uh, of David, uh, but I, I intend to say more about this idea next time in terms of this tent, and so I won't say a whole lot about it uh, here, but presumably, uh, somewhere along the line during these three months, David finds the Pentateuch, and he reads Exodus through Deuteronomy, or at the very least, the Levites and priests come to David and provide some instruction. They relearn and they teach and so forth. So verse 2, and then David said, no one may carry the ark of God but the Levites, for the Lord has chosen them to carry the ark of God and to minister before him forever. So last time you recall, we looked at Exodus 25, we looked at Numbers 4, and we see it was to be carried, and it was to be carried by the Levites, and in particular, the sons of Kohath. And so David here is saying these things. So verse 3, David gathered all Israel together at Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to its place, which he had prepared for it. Now, Second Samuel said something similar, but now we see a whole lot more as we continue through this chapter. David brings everyone together again. Do we have 30,000 again this time? Do we have more? Do we have less? We're not told. But again, try to imagine the scene here. Very likely, the streets were lined with people. The roads okay, coming to Jerusalem would have been lined with people. Marching bands, maybe even fire trucks and convertibles with leaders throwing candy to the children. Now, whatever exactly they did, okay, this is our setting. Okay? 
great joy, assembling for this purpose. So then verse uh, 4, he says, And David assembled the children of Aaron and the Levites. So for whatever civil leaders there uh, were present, here note especially the religious leaders. So verse 5, Of the sons of Kohath, Uriel the chief and 120 of his brethren, of the sons of Merari, Asiah the chief and 220 of his brethren, of the sons of Gershom, Joel the chief, and 130 of his brethren. Now you recall that the sons of Levi were three, and they were these three, Kohath, Merari, and Gershom. And so descendants of these three men now are uh, leading the way uh, for this event. So Uriel, the son of Kohath, with 120 of his brethren, uh, Asiah with 220 of his, and then Joel, the 130 of the sons of Gershom. But it continues, verse 8. Of the sons of Elisaphon, Shemaiah the chief, and 200 of his brethren. Of the sons of Hebron, Eliel the chief, and 80 of his brethren. And of the sons of Uziel, Aminadab the chief, and 112 of his brethren. Now, if I were preaching through this passage, we turn to all these different passages. But let me just reference here for you. Uh, Numbers chapter 3, verse 30, speaks of Elisaphon. And we are told that he is also a descendant of Kohath. And so Shemaiah here is also a Kohathite, along with the 200. In verse 9, we see Hebron. Don't think of the city, think of the man. We are told in Exodus 6, verse 18, that he too was a son of Kohath. And so Eliel then, one of the descendants of Hebron, uh, were leading the way here. And so they have 80 of them that came along. Then in verse 10, Uziel is another son of Kohath. And so Aminadab now is the immediate descendant with 112 of his brethren. So again, in Numbers 4, as I referenced last time, it was the Kohathites who were responsible for carrying the ark and caring for all the furniture of the tabernacle. So it's not surprising then, of the 862 sons of Levi mentioned here, 512 of them were descendants of Kohath. So let's keep going. Verse 11, And David called for Zadok and Abiathar the priests, and for the Levites, for Uriel, Asiah, Joel, Shemaiah, Eliel, and Aminadab. And so the same men are mentioned here, at the end of the verse, but at the beginning, we see there, there were two high priests at the time of David, Zadok and Abiathar. Every Abiathar is the one who escaped Nob and went to David, and so he and Zadok were leading the priestly family at this time. Um, and just briefly, you remember later that Solomon put Abiathar down because of him joining with uh, Abinadab there and revolting uh, excuse me, Adonijah, I'm sorry, uh, as he revolted against David. Uh, but this is in fulfillment of God's promise. Remember, Eli's line was to come to an end. And it almost came to an end at Nob. And it does come to an end as priest under Solomon. But, <coughs> excuse me, but at this point, both Zadok and Abiathar are priests. So verse 12, he, David, said to them, you are the heads of your father's houses of the Levites. Sanctify yourselves, you and your brethren, that you may bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel to the place I have prepared for it. For because you did not do it the first time, 
The Lord our God broke out against us because he, we did not consult him about the proper order. You know, the word break out there, so parrots, right? Parrots, asa. And notice how David does put the blame on them. And really, they should have informed David and, and such. Uh, and so verse 12, right? Get ready. Verse 13, do it correctly this time. So verse 14 so the priests and the Levites sanctified themselves to bring up the ark of the Lord God of Israel. And the children of the Levites bore the ark of God on their shoulders by its poles, as Moses had commanded according to the word of the Lord. So verse 14, they got ready. Right? They did all the ceremonial washings. They put on the right garments and this, that, and the other. And then in verse 15, they did it correctly. So if you missed it in 2 Samuel 6, that brief statement Okay, uh, here now spelled out very explicitly. So verse 16, then David spoke to the leaders of the Levites to appoint their brethren to be singers accompanied by instruments of music, string instruments, harps, and cymbals by raising the voice with resounding joy. So <clears throat> pretty straightforward here. David now is uh, appointing all these musicians and singers. So verse 17, so the Levites appointed Haman, the son of Joel, and of his brethren, Asaph, the son of Berechiah, and of their brethren, the sons of Merari, Ethan, the son of Cushiah. Now, uh, these are the three chief musicians. And so what we talked about in the Psalms, right? These are the three men. When David would write a psalm and give it to the chief musician, it was one of these three guys. And they would put it to music if David had not written it for music yet and basically arranged it for everybody in Israel to sing. And so here are these three men, and they're all uh, Levites. All right, now, uh, also, Ethan and Jeduthun are probably the same man. Um, note the similar name. So verse 18. And with them, their brethren of the second rank, Zechariah, Ben, Jaziel, Shemiramoth, Jehiel, Uni, Eliab, Benaiah, Maaseah, Matathiah, Eliphaleh, Mikneah, Obed-Edom, and Jael, the gatekeepers. And so not only musicians, but now gatekeepers are part of this important day. Again, note the Obed-Edom here, probably the one that we've been talking about. Verse 19, the singers, Haman, Asaph, and Ethan, so there's the three men again, who were to sound the symbols of bronze, too. Verse 20, Zechariah, Aziel, Shemiramah, Jehiel, Uni, Eliab, Maaseah, Boniah, with strings according to Alamoth. So they're not only gatekeepers, but they also played strings, notice. Matathiah, Eliphalah, Mekneah, Obed-Edom, Jael, and Azaziah to direct with harps on the Sheminith. So note, they're also having this task. Verse 22, uh, Kenaniah, leader of the Levites, was instructor in charge of the music because he was skillful. Hey, this is your orchestra conductor. This is your band leader. Okay. So verse 23, Berechiah and Elkanah were doorkeepers for the ark. Shebaniah, Joshaphat, Nethanel, Amasai, Zechariah, Benaiah, and Eleazar were the priests were to blow the trumpets before the ark of God and Obed-Edom and Jehiah, doorkeepers for the ark. Okay. 
Now, we basically know nothing about these men other than what's mentioned here. But you see how um, just involved this whole event was and all these people that participated. It's like going down and get the Pittsburgh Symphony Orchestra to come and do some event up here at church or something. This is a big deal. So verse 25. So David, the elders of Israel, and the captains over thousands, went to bring up the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord from the house of Obed-Edom with joy. So we have all these religious leaders that are spelled out by name. But also we have the civil leaders, the elders, and the captains, the military leaders. So verse 26, And so it was when God helped the Levites who bore the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord that they offered seven bulls and seven rams. Now 2 Samuel tells us they went six steps first. And there it just simply says oxen and fatted sheep. Here we are told that it was seven oxen, seven bulls, and seven rams of these fatted sheep that were offered. So verse 27, David was clothed with a robe of fine linen, as were all the Levites who bore the ark, the singers, and Kaniah the uh, music master with the singers. David also wore a linen ephod. Now notice what 1 Chronicles emphasizes here. 2 Samuel is going to focus on Michael, but here the clothing connects David with the Levites. He's dressed the same way as one of these Levitical leaders. Remember, he's the king. Remember, Saul got in trouble for offering a sacrifice. But David here is a priest king in Jerusalem, like Melchizedek a thousand years before, who was priest king in Jerusalem, and like our true priest king, Jesus, a thousand years afterward in Jerusalem. The typology here seems to be very intentional. So verse 28, thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting, with the sound of the horn, with trumpets and with cymbals, making music with stringed instruments and harps. Again, try to imagine the scene here. This would have been amazing. Hey, think of the biggest parade you've ever been to. Or maybe you think of the Rose Bowl Parade or something like that, the Rose Parade there at New Year's or something to that effect. Okay. Um, I also was reminded, you might remember the very uh, the first Star Wars movie, not number four, but the first one after they defeated the, the trade guild and so forth. And there's this huge celebration with all these people processing up and so on. And Anakin's there and he looks cute and all this sort of thing. And, you know. I mean, it's this kind of scene, right? Much celebration and joy. Note it says here that ram's horns, the shofar, were blown as well as trumpets. So then verse 29, And it happened as the ark of the covenant of the Lord came to the city of David, that Michael, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David whirling and playing music, and she despised him in her heart. Now, here's the case where 2 Samuel says more than 1 Chronicles. And we'll look at that here, Lord willing, uh, later. But uh, obviously, in this regard, we have much more information than what we see in 2 Samuel 6 and uh, verses 12 and following. Okay. <clears throat> but this time, 
Because obedience was coupled with enthusiasm. Because good intentions were met with righteousness. All went well. Because there was humility and looking to God for his grace through the sacrifice. The religious activity and excitement and good intentions were successful. Still by God's grace, of course. But David now is acknowledging that point. Let me read again here from Dr. Davis in this way. He says, I want you to combine this point with my previous point in order to see the full truth. Here you are to cheer with Yahweh's joy. But there... We talked about last week, right? You are to tremble before Yahweh's holiness. You see how the Bible balances truth? How you have both these emphases within one chapter. Fearfulness and gladness are held together. In Yahweh's presence, you should both shudder and dance. Whether you can comprehend it or not, 2 Samuel 6 teaches you that a fearful sense of God's holiness does not suppress joy, but actually stimulates it. David said so in Psalm 2 when he says, Rejoice with trembling. You have to be one of Zion's children to know how true this paradox is. Let us end here in this way. Let's turn to two places. First of all, uh, 1 Samuel chapter 4. The last time that Israel moved the ark was back in the days of Eli. Remember, they were fighting with the Philistines, and they lost. They thought, oh, the ark will enable us to win. Note especially verses 5 and 6. 1 Samuel 4, and when the ark of the covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And they understood that the ark of the Lord had come to the camp, so the Philistines were afraid. Note the shouting associated with the ark. Now in our two passages here today, let me just read again briefly. This is 2 Samuel six fifteen. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. 1 Chronicles 15, 28. Thus all Israel brought up the ark of the covenant of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the horn. Let's now turn to Psalm 47. This is a familiar psalm because I use it rather frequently in our calls to worship. Psalm 47, it says, To the chief musician, a psalm of the sons of Korah. Oh, clap your hands, all you peoples. Shout to God with the voice of triumph. For the Lord Most High is awesome. He is the great king over all the earth. He will subdue the peoples under us and the nations under our feet. He will choose our inheritance for us, the excellence of Jacob, whom he loves. Selah. God has gone up with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our King, sing praises. For God is the King of all the earth. 
Sing praises with understanding. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. The princes of the people have gathered together. The people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is greatly exalted. Was Psalm 47 written for this event? We don't know for sure, but it very well could have been. There's so many things in this psalm that connect with what we have seen, especially in 1 Chronicles 15. And the singing of praises, we'll see that in 1 Chronicles 16, specifically what was said. Now you recall that I've mentioned about shouting before. We do not want to think of the crazy person at a sporting event who is shouting and veins popping out of his neck. Now we're talking about lifting our voices, raising them up in praise to our God. So when we are exhorted to shout to the Lord, again, we're not acting like idiots. We are lifting up our voices in praise to our God. And there was a lot of that here with the bringing of the ark to Jerusalem. Okay. Does this kind of praise come from our mouths? Or are we a bit reticent to lift our voice in praise to God? Well, as always, there's so much to say here. And uh, this event is so significant. And there's several things we've learned thus far uh, here in this regard. So Lord willing, next time we will continue this and continue to use First Chronicles to expand our understanding. All right, let's pray together. Our Father and God, we do lift up our voices in praise to you. And we thank you especially for who you are. We thank you, Lord, for what your word ha- uh, teaches us about you here. We praise you, Lord, that you are our Father, our God, our Lord, our Master, our King. We praise you that you are righteous, that you are holy. We praise you too, Lord, that you are merciful, that you are gracious. We praise you, Lord, that we can come before you with boldness. We can praise and lift up your name. We can come with this confidence and security because of Christ because atonement has been made, and not through seven bulls and seven rams, but through Christ. And yet we also acknowledge that we come before you with humility. Lord, help us to find a good balance here in this way, that we would not run simply to grace and forget the need for righteousness, nor would we run simply to the need for righteousness and forget your grace. So help us to hold your character together, as it were, these truths together in our minds and certainly then in our living. Lord, we pray that you would give us a religious zeal and fervor like David here for our worship, for our love for you, but combine it, Lord, with obedience with fear, with reverence. And Lord, when we do fall short, for we undoubtedly do, even in our best efforts, Lord, help us not to turn from you, but to turn to you, that we might find grace 
that we might find holiness and growth and maturation at your hand by your spirit. And so, Lord, we um, are just marveling, really, at, at this event and the things that we've seen here. And we praise you, Lord, for being our God, for being uh, our Savior. And we praise you for these things. And we pray then in Jesus' name. Amen.